Well, welcome everybody to the 10th episode of the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations podcast. Just want to say thanks for all the interest that you've uh, shown by listening to, to the previous episodes and everything. And uh, certainly look forward to um, uh, doing more podcasts uh, for everybody and uh, hope you'll enjoy those, but also that, that you've enjoyed the, the previous ones. Thanks for all the, the comments and, um, and everything that, that you've made in the past and they, they help a lot for sure. And uh, so today, for the 10th episode, uh, it's another <laughs> surprise, a Russian history topic. So this one is about the Red Guards workers' militias and the arming of the Soviet state. So this is um, talking about how the Red Guards, which were, you know, kind of revolutionary workers' socialist militias, they eventually became part of what, what, what was to be known later as the Soviet Army or the Red Army. So um, just, to, uh, just to give a little bit of a clarification here, that uh, when you're looking at Russian history, especially the revolutions of 1917 and so on, you'll hear February Revolution and October Revolution. Uh, just keep in mind that when I mention those here, that's based on the old uh, Julie, old style Julian calendar, which Russia in, was using at the time of the communist revolution. So, and that's a few days behind what Russia now uses as the Gregorian calendar, right? So when you hear the term October revolution, it actually took place in November, as we know by the Gregorian calendar, because again, the Julian calendar was a few days behind. It was about 13 days, I believe, by the time the revolution happened. And that time was actually that difference was actually spreading or was actually getting larger. But um, so you'll hear October Revolution, but it actually took place in November. But I'll just be using the terms February Revolution and October Revolution just for, uh, for clarification. For a week in January 1918, the Bolshevik Petrograd Soviet, or Council, met and discussed its future. A lot had happened since the Soviet had taken power. In the previous October, October 1917, the Bolsheviks under Vladimir Lenin had successfully launched a coup to remove the provisional government from Petrograd, which was at that time the Russian capital. They had also removed the pet provisional government's power from Moscow and Serotov in a series of skirmishes. Russia was going to enter its first full year without the Romanov monarchy, and two revolutions in 1917 had brought, it, brought Russia under Bolshevik power. But the Bolsheviks had a lot in their plate. The Romanovs' war with Germany, uh, World War I, was still ongoing, and at this moment the front in Romania was collapsing in the wake of an enemy push. To make things worse, soon the no Bolshevik, new Bolshevik government would be fighting a civil war with multiple factions that wanted to destroy it. Thus, at this meeting, which took place specifically from January 4th to 11th, it was decided that the creation of a revolutionary army to preserve the Bolshevik party and the October Revolution was a top priority. The old Russian Imperial Army was abolished, and the Bolshevik military was instituted to take its place on January 15, but the creation of this, quote, Red Army of Workers and Peasants is officially dated to both February 23rd and April 22nd, 1918. The first date, February 23rd, is when conscription was started, and the second is when the following oath of service was created. As a son of the toiling people, and as a citizen of the Soviet Republic, I hereby swear before the working classes of Russia and of the whole world to dedicate my actions and my thoughts to the great aim of freeing all the workers, and to fight for the Soviet Republic, for the aims of socialism, and for the brotherhood of nations.
With this, the Bolsheviks now had the Red Army, a tool that could defend the communist program. Now, the important part of this story uh, for this study is the development of the is the deployment of 5,000 Red Guards to the collapsing Romanian front in January. And so, the Red Guards, as I mentioned before, were various groups of armed socialist workers originally created to defend their local factories. These workers' militias were an essential part of the revolution, for they took part in the Bolsheviks' crucial engagements. Much scholarship has already been produced about the Red Guards' roles in these critical moments, their social structure, and their activities before the 1917 revolutions. And a lot has been written about the origins of the Red Army and how its doctrine and command structure were created. But I'll certainly touch on those on both of those subjects in this podcast, but this, this is not meant to be an exhaustive study of either. Uh, here I'm interested in, in talking about what part the Red Guards played in the creation of the Red Army in 1918. For example, how important were these militias in the Bolshevik military after the revolutions of 1917? How many guards were part of the army? And what overall value did they have in the world's first communist military? Um, when doing this, when researching this, I, I came across some difficulty while doing that because information on the Red Guard's role in the Red Army after its creation seems it's quite scant, actually, uh, from what from what I have found. And and as Red Guard units were transformed into Red Army ones in April and May 1918, there were very few Guard units left in certain Russian regions, and this made it hard to make a proper analysis of the Red Guards within the Red Army. So there were just so the, some of those little difficulties that um, it's certainly an, uh, certainly an opportunity for further research in this topic. But also, in many sources, the Red Guards seemed to disappear upon their merger into the new military force, the Red Army. But nonetheless, I was still able to find some information about the Guards' numbers, and the fact that they formed a core of somewhat experienced fighters around which the Red Army could be built. The Red Guards also played an important role, going just beyond, you know, just simply their numbers and experience. They were important psychologically to the Red Army in that they embodied a, quote, armed proletariat. Their existence told the Bolsheviks and their supporters that they could protect themselves against foreign and domestic so-called bourgeois enemies. As will be shown, Bolshevik leaders like Lenin and Leon Trotsky, uh, the first People's Commissar for War and head of the Red Army, were very appreciative of this fact of the Red Guard's role of, you know, giving a, a morale, a, a basis, good basis for morale and uh, ideology within the military. To look at the Red Guards, we should look brief. We should briefly look back to a period before the October Revolution and the Russian Civil War. We can find the Guards' origins in the 1905 Revolution, which is a previous um, a previous event, um, within groups called the Druzhiny. Uh, such units were in more than 300 locations, including cities, villages, and even individual railroad stations. Druzhiny acted as workers' guards, and they launched strikes and protests. But they also acted violently by attacking government workers and police, and they even participated in some skirmishes that occurred in the Ural and, um, and other regions in Russia. When Tsar Nicholas II abdicated during the February Revolution of 1917, the provisional government took his place. But the working class still felt the need to arm itself, and it remembered the Druzhiny from 1905, believing that similar units could, could fulfill this need. At this time, the militias were being officially rebranded and organized into Red Guard units. 
This process started on April 17, 1917, in the Vyborg quarter of Petrograd, at the behest of that neighborhood Soviet. And, and a Soviet is kind of like a, like a communist council or a socialist council. But such Red Guard units were also being established in other cities, such as Moscow, Saratov, and Kharkov. Uh, Kharkov is in modern Ukraine, and it's in Ukrainian you also hear it known as uh, Kharkiv. And although many of these Red Guard militias were formed in the factories, it was a general workers' movement because some rail yards also had their own guards, just like the Druzhiny. And so, according to Eric Wallenberg, in the words of Eric Wallenberg, these guards were defined as the protectors of the gains of the revolution and working classes and defense against counter-revolutionary plots. In fact, during the provisional government's time in power, from February to October 1917, according to the old calendar, the workers' militias were helping the state to maintain order. This created a sort of dual authority people's militia between Alexander Kerensky's moderate socialist provisional government and the more radical Red Guard units. Murray Frame has, has written about the relationships between the provisional and Bolshevik governments that they had with the original imperial, imperial era theaters in Petrograd. So theater is far beyond the scope of this work, but it's worth noting that both revolutionary movements or governments, the provisional government and the Bolsheviks, they didn't do. They didn't want to do completely. Uh, completely get rid of the old state, the old imperial state structures. Lenin, for example, he wanted to appropriate and assimilate imperialist capitalist culture so that a new Bolshevik one could be formed out of that. Frame argues that keeping the theaters relatively intact also gave the Bolsheviks a sense of stability, while trying to destroy this old vestige of imperial Russian culture would have forced them to start completely from scratch. So until the theater's gradual assimilation into Bolshevik culture was complete, it could remain largely as it was. And so this, uh, this whole thing with the theater indicates a willingness on the part of the communists to work with the existing structures and organizations insofar as this didn't go against their plans. And because of this, uh, this mentality of you know working with the old systems, the Red Guards were able to work with the provisional government, helping to keep society stable, at least until the time of the October Revolution when the Bolsheviks fully took power. The Red Guards units took the form of individual cells, and while they were given directions from local workers' organizations, they were largely without central command. Historian Rex Wade has written a lot about these organizations and has argued that they're, they were an important reflection of spontaneity of revolutionary sentiment in Russia. The Red Guards garrison in Saratov, for example, was formed during the February Revolution without the direction of the Soviet councils. The workers took their own initiative and armed themselves. This was a movement with the whole population in mind. Contemporary socialist newspapers and documents were saying that giving the workers weapons was a way to, quote, arm the people. Some socialists, including the Mensheviks, as opposed to the Bolsheviks, opposed the Red Guards because they worried about the militia's independence and lack of central command. Those wary of the Guards preferred a proletarian militia over an army. Eric Wallenberg noted that the Petrograd's workers and so soldiers' Soviet news, quote, characterized the Red Guard as a wedge driven between the revolutionary proletariat and the army, fearing that this would cause paranoia between the workers and soldiers. 
Exactly what kind of role the guards should have was an important issue of debate in socialist circles at this time. But there were some events that, that came along and, and changed this, it's kind of solidified the debate and solidified support for the Red Guards. These were the so-called July Days and General L.G. Kornilov's coup attempt of 1917. So these events seemed to justify the desire to arm more workers and thus the formation of more Red Guard units. And so just as a little side note here, the July Days took place on July 3rd and 4th, 1917. This was when the Bolsheviks demonstrated in the streets for Soviet control and some organized an armed force to enforce their demands. The provisional government responded with violence and oppression, forcing which forced Lenin to flee to Finland. The following month, in August 1917, Army General Kornilov tried to overthrow the Kerensky government, believing that Kerensky was not repressing the communists strongly enough. Ironically, during Kornilov's coup attempt, the communists and Red Guards supported Kerensky against Kornilov to defend the revolution. Bolsheviks uh, ultimately took the Red Guards and formed them into an armed, politically educated section of their party. Uh, party membership was not essential to Guards membership, and it is hard to know exactly how many Guards belonged to each, belonged to each socialist party that was active at the time. However, during the Brusilov Offensive of 1916 and the July Days of 1917, uh, Leon Trotsky was agitating the Guards to specifically join the Bolsheviks, and by the time of Kornilov's rebellion, the guards had become the Bolshevik soldiers in Petrograd. Here it's worth looking at the thoughts of Edward Dune, a Latvian member of the Red Guards. Dune repeated the Bolshevik leader Lenin's comments on the Kornilov affair in his memoir. Quote, There can be no other way out apart from either a dictatorship of the Kornilovites or a dictatorship of the proletariat. End quote. This was especially because the Kornilov rebellion or coup attempt greatly damaged Kerensky's reputation. Dune said that he and other guards thought of the provisional government's leader as a buffoon, a ridiculous figure. To the Red Guards, the Kornilov incident was a sign that the time had come for an armed proletariat revolution, now that Kerensky was not a viable option. Months earlier, on March 22, 1917, Lenin had said that the creation of Red Guard units would guarantee the defeat of the so-called counter-revolutionaries. And the events of summer 1917, the July days, and the Kornilov revolt seemed to confirm this belief. As mentioned earlier, the Red Guards fought in multiple engagements for the revolutionary cause. Since their official creation by the Vyborg Soviet revolution, Resolution, they helped stop Kornilov, General Kornilov's push in August 1917. Even though the provisional government was arresting communists after the July days, when the Red, Guard, when the Red Guards came to Kerensky's defense, their status was legitimized to some extent. The state had given them the chance to pick up weapons for the safety of the revolution, and a, quote, workers' militia was officially created on August 28th. This did not last long, however, as the provisional government returned to its belligerent stance towards the communists and the Red Guards. To reduce the Guards' power, it ordered that weapons were to be registered. But then came the October Revolution, and Kerensky's repression of the Red Guards did not help, them, help him then. The Red Guards played a key part in Lenin's seizure of power. The details of their combat actions have been detailed in many other scholarly works, and I won't belabor them further here. But, it can, but we can simply note that during the October Revolution, the Red Guards, along with some pro-Bolshevik soldiers in the Old Army, captured Petrograd's strategically important centers, 
railroad stations, bridges, utilities, and the Winter Palace uh, in which the provisional government was holding a meeting at the time. The guards were then able to consolidate control of the capital after a series of shootouts with Sar old Tsarist officers and pro-provisional government uh, fighters or cadets that had remained in the city. Along with battles in Moscow and Serotov, workers' units were sent to fight various, against various revolts and counter-revolutionary forces throughout Russia. The guards in Kharkov, for example, had to fight a nationalist Ukrainian government known as the Rada uh, until the Bolsheviks made peace with the Germans in March 1918, the Brest-Litovsk Brest Treaty, and the Germans occupied Ukraine. At around this time, the Red Guards also began fighting over, all over Russia against the Czech Legion. These were uh, uh, Czech prisoners of war that were going across Russia and hoping to eventually get back to uh, uh, Czech lands. Uh, they were fighting against the Czech Legion, the ousted Kerensky, then the so-called White Generals, and foreign armies that were supporting the anti-Bolshevik forces. These counter-revolutionaries were rallying locals such as Turkic Bashkirs and Cossacks as well to fight the new Bolshevik order. The Russian Civil War had begun, and it would last until 1920 when the white General Wrangel was finally evacuated from Crimea. Early in the Civil War, the Red Guards helped consolidate the Communists' hold on power. In March 1918, on the Don River Basin, they were able to prevent the white general Kalidin and his Cossacks from meeting with the Ukrainian Rada and cutting the Bolsheviks off from this region. And this, and if the Bolsheviks had been cut off from the Don River Basin, this would, be, would have denied the Bolshevik government access to significant coal and grain supplies. Clearly, the Red Guards were crucial in this early stage when the communist state was in its infancy. They fulfilled the role of the proletariat fighting force, both literally and ideologically. Their worker base embodied the Bolshevik mindset towards warfare, which Lenin helped articulate. Um, and more specifically, war in communist ideological um, framework was fought by the working class, the Red Guards, for example, and its, and its advanced guard, the Communist Party. Conflict, like most other concepts in Marxist-Leninism, uh, was simply an aspect of class struggle. Thus, the guards played, Red Guards played a key role in the revolution because they were largely made up of workers and trade union members. So therefore, they had a close connection with the working people. And that's according to A.M. Konyev. Before the revolution, the Red Guard actually had army-like characteristics. They were organized into units as large as district divisions, regiments, and battalions, which consisted of 480 men. This went all the way down to squads of 13 fighters. Commanding Red Guard units were Bolshevik military cadres, as well as experienced officers from the Imperial Army. During their time in the factories, Red Guards practiced with their weapons and were paid to stand guard over their workplaces. So by the time they seized the Winter Palace in October 1917, the Red Guards had some of the organization and discipline needed for a fighting force. They also had medical personnel, so they were prepared to care for the inevitable wounded. But there was a major problem with the Red Guards. Even though they had effectively toppled the provisional government, much more was needed. We've already seen how the Guards were made up of locally organized groups without much central authority over them. Wade notes that uh, during the October Revolution in Petrograd, Guards units uh, took part largely after seeing what was happening. 
they simply acted, quote, in response to the news and events of the October Revolution without need of instructions from above, or at that time, complete Bolshevik oversight. Wade argues that the Guards' independent, spontaneous nature was not compatible with the standard army which the Bolsheviks needed by the time of the Russian Civil War. Though the Red Guard militia model had worked out well for the Bolsheviks in Petrograd and Moscow as a revolutionary movement, it was not always working well on the battlefields against the German and white armies, victories against Kalidin aside. Important as Red Guards may have been to communist proletarian warfare, these workers and union members were not experienced in full-scale warfare. The white armies were composed of regular soldiers, and they became much more formidable as they organized themselves. And while guerrilla warfare did have some success against the whites, it started failing miserably when the Civil War became a war of entrenchment rather than one of small, mobile engagements. So, for example, Eric Wollenberg, he, he speaks of communists in Siberia. They used guerrilla warfare to inflict, quote, incalculable damage upon the forces of white, leaguer, white leader Alexander Kolchak. And so the, the guerrillas would attack Kolchak's communication lines, agitate workers to the revolutionary cause, and then they'd retreat to the uh, Siberian taiga forests. But, so this is all good and fine, but... When the guerrillas, numbered at about 30,000, they attacked towns on open ground in April 1920, and, and there was actually uh, uh, a Japanese expeditionary force that was fighting the Bolsheviks, and this Japanese force just obliterated the, the, these 30,000 guerrillas. And um, so guerrilla tactics were working to some extent, but then when they actually had to fight a professional army in the open field, they didn't go so well. And also, Red Guards were retreating from Kazan under a white and anti-Bolshevik Czech onslaughts. Uh, and other small local detachments called um, Otriadi, these were seven to, uh, 700 to 1,000 man strong units with elected commanders. They were just being destroyed by Czech soldiers. Many of the communist groups also essentially became their own armies, going whichever way they wanted and not contributing to the overall war effort to keep the Soviets the the Soviet government alive. During this crisis, there was also an interesting debate going on within communist circles regarding the nature of the forming Red Army. Should the Bolshevik forces be organized like a group of militias or like a standard army? Many independent guerrillas did not want to submit to Bolshevik authority, and some even actively resisted command and had to be forced into submission. Such independence could not be tolerated by a government fighting to hold on to power a strong central army command was needed. Yet, some Bolsheviks, including Kim, Klim Voroshilov, objected to the use of a standard army. These people complained that such an organization was imperialist, and they argued that only a guerrilla anarchist force could be considered a true proletarian army. Voroshilov and his allies were extreme in their Marxist Puritanism, even refusing to follow the orders of officers taken from the pre-revolutionary army. Matthew M. Hurley has written a study around the ideological roots of this militia versus army debate, and this is, can be found in his book called A Worker's Way of War, The Red Army's Doctrinal Debate, 1918-24. Detailing Karl Marx's and Frederick Engels' philosophies on war, Hurley admits that their thoughts on this topic were somewhat unclear, which planted the seeds for the later arguments over what form the Red Army would exactly take. Regardless, Hurley argues that Marxism is an all-encompassing ideology, 
In other words, class warfare affects everything, even things seemingly unrelated, such as military strategy. Earlier I mentioned that in Bolshevik or communist thinking, military conflict was simply a manifestation of the larger aspect of proletarian struggle. This mindset led to the idea that there was a correct way of conducting the workers' military revolution. A.I. Teresov Rodionov, a communist commander during the Civil War, wrote in July 1919 in favor of guerrilla tactics and strategy that emphasized unit maneuverability. According to him, these methods displayed the proper character of proletarian combat. Teresov Rodionov also objected to the Bolsheviks' decision to use old Tsarist officers in the Red Army. And these were the so-called military specialists, or voyenspetsi. The old guard, Teresov Rodionov and his allies argued, would try to hold ground and follow the positional military strategy seen during the First World War. This style of combat did not, take prop did not properly take politics into account. Thus, it was incompatible with an army that wanted to spread Marxist revolution. Finally, the fact that the military specialists were part of the old Tsarist army was disastrous, he thought. He could not see how these officers would help the proletarian army. It was believed that the Voyenspetsi would never fully understand Marxism. The positional style of warfare of a standard imperial, ar imperial army reminded the Marxist diehards of the specialist's bourgeois character. The reasoning behind a proper way of conducting revolutionary warfare seems comical. Uh, Trotsky even laughed at Teresov-Rodionov's complaints, and he argued, and Trotsky argued that during the Civil War, the, the counter-revolutionary whites were also using fast-moving cavalry, the strategy of maneuver, more in line with a guerrilla war, a sort of guerrilla warfare style of combat rather than digging in the trench, which the Marxist diehards were saying that was a bourgeois style of warfare. But Trotsky was saying the whites are also using fast-moving units. And earlier in the war, the Red Army had a lack of cavalry and suffered from a lack of manpower, forcing them to, forcing them to take a more positional approach. Trotsky did admit that guerrilla warfare had its uses, and in some ways it could be implemented into the Red Army. He said that partisan detachments had been an annoyance to Kolchak's white Siberian army, and he wrote, quote, The revolutionary power, the Bolshevik government, works to incorporate the best partisan detachments into the system of a regular military organization. By appropriating the guerrilla units and effectively controlling them, Trotsky said that the communists could take advantage of the benefits of partisan combat while preventing these bands from turning into, quote, factors of disorder and breaking away from or turning on the Bolsheviks. Guerrilla units were also sometimes all that was available in a certain area, considering how wide and unpredictable the fronts were during the Civil War. And it's interesting to note that during the spring and summer of 19... 19, the Volga and Ural fronts were between 900 and 1,000 kilometers long. Troop movements throughout the Russian Civil War reached distances of up to almost 3,000 kilometers. So in such circumstances, it's impossible. it was impossible to have large contingents of troops stationed everywhere, but small pockets of guerrillas might be effective when under proper command and coordination. Interestingly, Historian Dale Herspring notes that during the October Revolution, Lenin had initially favored a proletarian militia. 
It's understandable why he would think this way, as Red Guard militias had helped him take power in Petrograd. But later, well, as the civil war was developing, and this was a full-scale war, not just taking out a few, uh, not just capturing a few buildings in the capital and the other cities. He Lenin changed his mind and decided that a standing army was necessary, and the practical needs of winning the war outweighed the revolutionary idealism which had called for a militia. Herspring writes, "There was no time to work out a program that would be ideologically acceptable to all segments of the Communist Party." As that famous quote is. You can't please everybody. The Bolsheviks aimed to create a regular army that rejected socialist idealism. Not only were guerrilla units being merged into the Red Army, but experienced Tsarist officers were also going to be actively recruited. On April 29, 1918, Order No. 1 was rescinded. And Order No. 1 was a measure uh, from, from March 1917 that which allowed units to elect their commanders. And as far as this election of officers goes, this is something the Marxist purists probably didn't consider. If commanders continued to be elected, what guaranteed that the soldiers would choose an officer that was competent or even politically conscious enough? Dune noted in his memoir that be just before the time of the Brest-Litovsk Peace Treaty of 1918, the Left Socialist Revolutionaries, or SRs, these were non-communist, non-Bolshevik non -Bolshevik communists. The Left Socialist Revolutionaries in Dune's unit, they objected to fighting against the Germans, even though the fighting was still ongoing. And this included the unit's commander. So how could an effective Bolshevik army be built around such independent militias whose allegiances depended on party alignment? The need for a centralized military structure was clear. The Workers' Peasants' Red Army would become like one in the imperialist countries, but it would still have the political orientation of the working class. After all, the armed proletariat were going to be part of this new military force. The Red Guards were being merged into it. Conscription was Lenin's answer to the guerrilla question. If Soviet citizens were pressed into service, they could form a militia after the immediate emergency of the civil war was passed. This was one way of appeasing the likes of Voroshilov and Tarasov Rodionov, who preferred militias to a regular army. Lenin and Trotsky did not start with polit military political doctrine when creating the Red Army. They had to work with what was there, Red Guards, and only then develop ideas like class unity through Marxist education, which was performed in the military. As the decision was made to create the Workers' Peasants' Red Army in early 1918, fighting units were naturally built around the Red Guards, who already had significant numbers. During the July days of 1917, the Red Guards are said to have numbered about 10,000, and this number had doubled around the time of the Kornilov Revolt in August. How many Red Guards were in fact rolled into the Red Army has been a matter of debate. Eric Wallenberg suggested that by May 10, 1918, 34,000 out of 50,000 total Red Guards were integrated into the Bolshevik Red Army, which, and the army in total, numbered around 306,000. D.N. Collins, writing in 1972, suggested that 70 or 70,000 to 100,000 Red Guards were present. Konev agrees, saying that about 100,000 Red Guards were in the Red Army by the end of April 1918. Regardless of any debate over actual numbers, all can agree that this was a significant core around which the Red Army could be built. 
The reality is that when they had just come to power, the Bolsheviks had to rely on Red Guards, despite their inability to effectively resist uh, the Czechs and Whites at Kazan, for example. In Dune's memoir, the old army of five million, uh, the old imperial army of five million was scrapped, and only 900,000 were in the service of the new Bolshevik government. And according to a 1937 edition of Pravda, the communist uh, uh, propaganda newspaper, the Bolsheviks only had the Red Guards and some remnants of the old Russian army once it had been scrapped in January 1918. So again, just keep in mind that this uh, article from 1937 uh, being in Pravda, it's a Stalinist era propaganda piece. So who knows how many of these facts were actually real. But it, it still shows how important the guards were in Bolshevik memory or mythology. According to this view, the Red Guards were among the few capable of defending the Bolshevik Revolution. And this core of Red Guards was also supplemented with the addition of more experienced officers from the Tsarist military, the military specialists, uh, of whom almost 270,000 were serving the Red Army by the middle of 1920. A model of dual military party command was established. Under this system, Bolshevik party commissars, or political officers, were sent to the front, and an order was considered invalid unless both the commander and a commissar had authorized it. This gave the new centralized Red Army a politically revolutionary legitimacy built from working class Red Guards and given a party-enforced command structure. So. In a way, this is kind of the best of both worlds. Remember that debate about, you know, this this uh, this revolutionary military force should only be in the form of militias. We shouldn't have a centralized structure that's too imperialist. That's what the, um, the ideologues were thinking. But then the reality of we need a centralized military structure. So this is kind of a, a working in between. So they do have a centralized military structure and with Tsarist era officers being integrated into this Red Army, but you also have a political um, ideological enforcement because again, you have, you have a bunch of Red Guards that are part of you know ideological Red Guards that are in this army, but also you have the Commissars enforcing that ideology into the military, uh, making the older commanders accountable to a Bolshevik ideology. So it's kind of a blending of those two. It's kind of a way of resolving um, that debate over whether we should have a normal standing army like in the other, you know, the other so-called bourgeois countries or should we have it as just militias. So this is a way of reconciling those. So as for combat experience, the Red Guards did have some practice while training at their factories. You know, practice makes perfect, and as painful as it was, they were gaining some combat experience on the Ukrainian, Ural, and Caucasus fronts in the war. They also provided some structure to the forming Red Army, which was a somewhat chaotic melting pot of independent, remote, and many, eth and many ethnically diverse units. There was also a marked lack of volunteers joining the army, and drives to recruit peasants were not always successful, though this did change as the Soviets became more powerful in Russia's remote areas. So, um, uh, just to talk a little bit about the, the peasants here, John Ellis gives us a bit more detail, and he argues that the peasants saw the land as theirs, not that of the Bolshevik state. Fair enough. Uh, so, the peasants were likely not, not likely to get involved in partisan or guerrilla warfare if they cared to fight at all. And this, of course, clashed with the Bolsheviks' desire for a centrally commanded army. 
peasants also resented the Bolsheviks' confiscation of their lands. Uh, you know, again, for the good of the state, right? Uh, the peasantry, it turned out, were not exactly an ideal source of recruits for the Red Army. Leon Trotsky acknowledged that the peasants were important in Marxist thought, but he also believed that the independent mindsets of the peasants were difficult to integrate into the Red Army. Thus, the Soviet government uh, came to rely more on urbanites and factory workers to man their forces. And Orlando Figes also reports that when mass conscription was introduced in June 1918, only 40,000 peasants joined the army, out of an approximate uh, prediction of a quarter million. This is because, he argues, that there was a lack of military infrastructure in the countryside. So this made the Red Guards more important. You know, we're not getting enough peasants coming into the new Red Army, so we need these Red Guards. The guards provided the Red Army with, also with military headquarters in centers such as Petrograd and Moscow, which gave orders to troops on the front and handled recruitment. These guards' headquarters were transformed into command centers for the new Red Army. Also, many Red Army regiments were formed from guard units in Petrograd, Moscow, Ukraine, Belarus, the Urals, and Siberia. In his work, Red Guards for the Protection of October, Alexander Konev listed over 50 such regiments, including the 1st Corps of the Workers' Peasants' Red Army, formed by Red Guards and soldiers of the Petrograd garrison. And this unit was formed on January 18, 1918. By March 16, it had grown to more than 16,000 men. In April, 26,000 soldiers were part of the 1st Corps. Most of the militias were blended into the Red Army from January until June 10, 1918. Some units did not finish this process until the end of 1918 and early 1919, such as those stationed in Russia's Far East. Nonetheless, this creation of a standing army from, quote, proletarian militias is actually quite impressive. In 1917, the Bolsheviks had seized a greatly weakened country while it was still fighting the central powers of World War I. Almost immediately, counter-revolutionary forces began resisting the new communist government, and while the civil war continued, the Bolsheviks had to form an effective army. All of this was occurring in a very large country with, with a sparse, diverse population and sometimes unreliable communication and transportation systems. Despite these challenges, however, the Red Army came, became home to 5 million, including non-combat personnel, by the civil war's end. How much did the Red Guards contribute to the Red Army's formation and success? Clearly, the numbers of the, that the Guards were able to bring to the Army are significant, but some would argue that the Guards were not very important to the formation of the Red Army due to disagreements on their actual numbers and their problems with training. Second, one must not forget that the other troops, uh, that other types of troops fought for the Bolsheviks. Many officers from the old military, as the previously mentioned military specialists, became Red Guards officers and they provided the bulk of the officer corps in the new Red Army. There were also Latvian soldiers, for example, numbering 17,000 men that brought much needed combat experience to the forming Red Army. There was also the so-called International Legion and, under, and other groups made up of Serbs, Hungarians, Poles, Romanians, and even Chinese and Korean laborers and volunteers. The sailors should also be mentioned. And the sailors manned the cruiser Aurora, which gave the signal for the final push on the Winter Palace in the October Revolution. So they played a crucial role in that. But many soldiers also fought on the ground. 
Brian Moynihan notes that there were not there was not much naval combat during the Russian Civil War, so soldiers were able to critically reinforce the Bolshevik ground forces. Finally, Alexander Rabinovich has he's quoted in an essay from a contemporary collection called A Year of Proletarian Revolution, which suggested that the Red Army had replaced the Red Guards as the main Bolshevik military arm. The essay, which told of a celebration of the revolution in Petrograd, said this, quote, A year ago, all we had was a small group of courageous, or courageous worker Red Guards. Now we have an army, the Red Army, that even Imperial Europe would have to praise. The white forces also did not lose the Civil War solely because of the Red Guards and the Red Army that they helped create. The whites were also, the, the, there were many factions of, of so-called white generals. There was Kolchak and, and others, right? So they were uncoordinated and they did not get enough enthusiastic support from the peasantry. Sheila Fitzpatrick notes that while both sides had some difficulty getting war-weary peasants to join them, the whites supported the old landlord's claims to peasant land. And also, finally, the whites had no compelling propaganda to compete with the Bolsheviks, and they did not cater to Russia's national minorities, whereas the Red Army had a spot for them. Uh, at times, the communist victory in the Civil War seems like a miracle. But during the Civil War, perhaps the Whites' faults were the most important factors in actually helping the Bolsheviks win. Non-Red Guard troops made significant contributions to the Red Army, and the Red Guards certainly lost some of their importance as the Red Army took over their role and grew. But this does not mean the Red Guards were not important. Rex Wade has commented a lot on how psychologically important the Red Guards were during the early stages of the Bolshevik, Revo Bolshevik Revolution. These bands of workers' militias were able to overawe, quote-unquote, the enemy in their initial engagements in Petrograd and Serotov. And it also didn't hurt that the provisional government's troops were unmotivated, undisciplined, and poorly trained as well. In Moscow, for example, they fielded 8,500 guardsmen at first, but as the fighting progressed, that number rose to 30,000. These Red Guards were workers who could arm and defend themselves without relying on others. During the battles with the provisional government for Russia's key centers, the guards showed unquestionable enthusiasm and commitment with the name Red Guards. They were soldiers of the proletariat, and this became a rallying point for communist ideology. During the October Revolution, Bolshevik leaders were happy when the Red Guards arrives, arrived for the final seizure of the Winter Palace. Wade says that the Bolsheviks, quote-unquote, had little confidence in the reliability of their soldiers and some of these troops were eh, kind of ambivalent towards this, uh, towards taking over the provisional government. But the Red Guards helped push these indifferent soldiers to help the Bolshevik effort. We've already studied some of the Red Guards' lack of military success during the Civil War, for example, at Kazan. The Guards did indeed suffer a lot from the lack of proper training. Drills on factory compounds can hardly prepare a worker for real combat situations and the weak provisional government troops were far different from the battle-hardened uh, Czech soldiers, for example. And so before the Brest-Litovsk peace treaty, the Germans were pushing through the uh, Russian front. And at this point, the, the Red Guards had little experience other than drills at the factory. And a minimal amount of training was being given to recruits that were just about to be sent off. And the front line is hardly a, an ideal place for consistent quality combat training. D. Fyodotov White wrote that sometimes a Red Guard did not receive much instruction at all. And one guard even said this, 
We came direct from the factory, we received rifles, and left for the front. So this lack of training would be an important factor in the poor performance some Red Guard units showed during the Russian Civil War after the war with Germany was, was finished. However, the Red Guards did bring some tactical experience which the Red Army needed. Most sources I researched unfortunately didn't talk about the specifics of Red Guards' battles during the Russian Civil War, which made this aspect hard to study. But, but Konyev did mention that the Red Guards had maneuverability and, manu and mobility, which was critical in a war with long, con non-continuous fronts. This conflict was not about holding all territory, but again, rather key centers. In this war, the train stations were crucial, as they largely dictated troop movements. Red Guards had access to artillery, machine guns, and armored trains to protect these transportation hubs. Control of these train stations allowed the Red Guards to establish what were literally known as Red Guard Barriers, zones in which they could maintain control over and disarm any unruly, unreliable troops. Konyev writes that the Red Guards were the, quote, basis, the skeleton of the Workers' Peasants' Red Army. But perhaps their most important legacy was the non-military contribution they made to the Bolshevik state. Away from combat, they acted as propagandists and agitators of the Leninist, Leninist idea. Dune wrote about the General Kaledin's uprising against the provisional government in the months before the October Revolution. Now, just to clarify any confusion that might come, this is not General Kornilov, this is General Kaledin. So this was a, uh, a Don Cossack leader that fought against the provisional government, but this was after Kornilov's rebellion. As part of the initial provisional government Red Guard dual authority, Dune and his fellow guards were sent to the Don Basin to act as policemen, confiscating weapons from train passengers and fighting in occasional engagements with Kaledin's forces. But Dune also wrote that the guards did more than carry out than police duties. He says, We walked with the peasants, held meetings, and agitated for the dispatch of food and coal to the central industrial regions. Local workers also asked the guards for advice on what they should do. Unfortunately, Dune does not give any more detail on this. For example, what did the guards tell the workers about how to prepare for a proletarian revolution? He, he doesn't say. The guards were also politically educated as the commissars and commanders spread Bolshevik theory throughout their ranks. Konyev has written that the Red Guards brought their own courts, instructions, and methods into the Red Army. Mark von Hagen has written extensively on how the Red Army became a key social institution in the early Bolshevik state. After the Russian Civil War, the military helped rebuild the infrastructure devastated by the fighting that had been happening since the beginning of World War I in 1914. Army members were brought into the government system for they had organizational experience. This is only natural. When a country is devastated economically right, like Russia was at this time, military service is a meaningful option to survive. Due to this process, the Red Army became a, quote, new elite and the political education inside the military became a testing ground for propaganda towards civilians. The direct influence on the Red Guard of the Red Guards on the Bolshevik state may be hard to quantify, because they had been fully merged into the Red Army by the time Mark van Hagen is describing. But if the Guards truly were the backbone of the nascent Red Army, their effect on Bolshevik society is fairly evident, if in an indirect way. According to Bolshevik ideology, the Red Guards represented the essential character of the proletarian movement, armed communism, and the fighting worker.
They also embodied the internationalism of the proletariat. Just as many non-Russians fought in the Civil War, many different ethnicities were in the Red Guards. Russians, Tatars, Ukrainians, Hungarians, Germans, Romanians, Czechs, and Poles. The Red Army, says M.K. Dzvonovsky, was one of proletarian internationalism, not Russian patriotism. In Finland, Hungary, and other countries, socialist groups set up organizations similar to the Russian Red Guards, hoping to follow the Bolshevik example. Indeed, when the Red Army was being planned, it was hoped that it would help stabilize Russia and then spread the revolution west into Europe. According to a special issue of Pravda, celebrating the Red Guards' 20th anniversary, the Red Guards were, quote, the main, Red Guards were the main power of an armed proletariat. It was the main force which had the Soviet power's approval. It was the nucleus around which the workers' peasants' Red Army was formed. The guards said this propaganda piece displayed great, unselfish commitment to the great October Revolution and its socialist ideals. In closing, Lenin's approval of the Red Guards is worth quoting. Lenin said, The Red Guards carried out the most noble and the highest historical cause by liberation of the workers and the exploited from the yoke of the exploiters. Regardless of debates about the combat, the guards' combat effectiveness and numbers compared to other units in the Red Army, it is undeniable that they had an important part in the later Soviet states' imagining of the world's first proletariat army. So that's all we have for the podcast today. Uh, like I say, this is um, this is an opportunity for further research. I would like, certainly like to do more research on this topic because, again, uh, as I mentioned, sometimes there are debates on numbers. There's um, there's very, I found very little details on how the Red Guards actually fought. Um, it would be really good to get an account of all their red, all the guard, all the battles that the Red Guards fought, both in the dying uh, the. Uh, the last few months of the World War One against Germany, but also against you know white forces and expeditionary forces like uh, Canadians, Japanese, and so on. So I would really like more details on that. So hopefully, hopefully I'll be able to get access to uh, that information as well and be able to have a more complete picture of how the Red Guards influenced the Red Army. But um, I hope that this was a good, at least a good introduction. That the fact that the Red Guards were um, ideologically important, you know, these are the first socialist f fighters, they're militias, they get the revolution going, and everything like that. So, hope it was a good introduction, and hope that you enjoyed this uh, 10th episode of the podcast, and now it's just time for editing and getting it uploaded. So, we'll talk to you next time.